Turn your Bible to Matthew 24, and I'll be there in a minute. Eric, I'm missing the clicker. Never mind, Eric, I found the clicker. There we go. I, I read a book recently by Vern Porthries. He's a uh, kind of a nerdy uh, professor that works out of Reformed Theological Seminary over in Jackson. Might be approaching retirement. Uh, smart guy, has a math background, an engineering background. He wrote a book. There we go. He wrote a book that deals with the alleged contradictions in the, in the gospel account. Um, and one of the ideas that he has is that whenever you hear a story in the gospels, you're, uh, uh, whenever you hear a story in the gospels, the, you go back and you recreate that story in your own mind. You listen to it and consciously, unconsciously, what you're doing is you're basically making a movie out of that story. And when you do that, you're filling in details, you're putting personality, you're putting a feel to the story. And the point that he makes is a lot of times that when we, when we put that story together like that, what happens is we fill in details, we provide details, we put part of the story together, and when you put it together, it's not really there. And one of the points that he makes is when we start finding contradictions, we read something in the Gospels and say, well, this looks like a contradiction. What really happened right there is that there's not a contradiction in the text. You put the story together a certain way in your mind, and then when you read that story in the text, it's not exactly, you, you, that's where the contradiction comes from. I, I, I want to use as an example Matthew 21 and Mark, because we just looked at it a few weeks ago few weeks and maybe a few months ago time's gotten funny on us so let's read Matthew and you don't read I'll just read it to you stay where you are Matthew 21 17 and leaving them he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there in the morning as he as he was returning to the city he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves and he said to it may no fruit ever come from you again and the fig tree withered at once when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Now, you can find the same bit of narrative over in Mark 11. And see if you can, can see one of the contradictions that, that the Gospels have been accused of. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had, had looked around at everything, I'm reading in verse 11, as it, all, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Now we have, uh, he went on and he cleansed the temple. So pick up again in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its root. And, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now, does anybody see what could be construed a, a, as a contradiction there? In Matthew, we read the story. And if we read the story exactly as it is in Matthew, it says, Jesus condemned, cursed the fig tree, and it happened at once. But then you read in the book of Mark, and it looks like there was a time span across that. And, and the reality is, it's a, 
when you look at Matthew, we don't automatically put Jesus, the guys walking on and then coming back and seeing it. We see it compressed. We see the whole story compressed. So it's very easy to put Matthew and Mark together. But when we read the story of, in Matthew and we put it together in like a narrative, a movie, and then we read Mark, we think, uh-oh, there's a mistake here. I bring this up because last week, Pastor Bray made an interesting, he, 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 went, he took that same reasoning and went a different direction with it. And I thought it, thought it was, was really interesting how he did it. What he did was he challenged us. We all come to Matthew 24, and we, we, we have a notion of what that, that chapter means, or we might be very solid in our opinion what that chapter means. But then we, when we look at it, we need to make sure that what we think it's saying actually lines up with the words that are actually in the text. So what he was saying was, is that it's very easy for us to do, just like in a narrative, it's very easy for us to do damage to the text by adding our own details to the story. By the same way, it's easy for us to do damage to a te text like this by coming to it with a preconceived notion of what this text says. And instead of us having our thinking drawn out of the text, us are thinking formed by what's the words that are in the text. It's very easy for us to take our preconceived notion, our, 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 our doctrinal statement, if you will, and shove it back into the text. That's easy to do. And so his challenge was for us to go back in there and look at what do we think about, about what this passage says? How does that line up with actually the words that are in the text? Christ in one teaching, and this is a, a fantastic passage. Christ in one teaching sheds light on how we should read the Old Testament. But at the same time, he's, he's telling us how, how the New Testament, how, how, we can, how, how we should understand the Old Testament. But then he's going to be using all these phrases in the Old Testament and using them in the New Testament. So it almost, just on an intellectual, academic level, it's a fantastic passage because it just pushes our understanding how the Bible fits together forward. And it's a great tool on that. My concern when I read a passage like this is that I look at it intellectually. I look at it academically. And I don't look at the, the feelings, the emotions. Can I use the word ethos that's in this passage? Often we can be blinded by the way, by the way we, when we read a passage, that we can be blind. There's so, so many different ways. I, I, I think a lot of times we just become so familiar with it. We read this passage, and we've read this passage over and over and over again, and it, then it just becomes words on the page, and, the, and the, the word, the message never comes off the page. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a blacksmith by day, a welder blacksmith by day. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was a guy that ran around town and he did safety demonstrations on, on cutting torches, oxygen and acetylene. You remember if any of y'all use that? And you can put a little bit of oxygen into a balloon and, and he, would, he would go and he'd light it and it would flame up. And then he would, would take a little bit of acetylene and he would, would light it up and again it would flame up. And then he would take a measured amount of oxygen and a measured amount of acetylene and he'd put it in a balloon. And it would, it would, you'd have a small explosion right there. 
But he did this thing over and over again. It was just kind of his regular stick that he'd go into to shops and do this safety uh, seminar and do it. He was doing it once and it was in a, in a closed room, supposedly, and he put too much oxygen, too much acetylene in the balloon, lit that thing up, it blew, it shattered glass, somebody lost an eardrum. I can tell you, I've heard that, I've been in this business 30 years, I've probably hold, heard that story told 20 times, and every time the explosion gets a little bit bigger. But, but you get my point, that um, we can do something over and over and over again. We can read a passage over and over and over again, and it loses its impact. It becomes nothing but words on, on, a, on a page. I, um, I think there's another thing that, that makes it difficult for us. It, look at Matthew. Let's read just a little bit of the text. Matthew 24, 15 through 22. So when, so when you see the abomination desolation spoken, I read in verse 15, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take that, is it, take that what was in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing gifts in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be this great tribulation such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, no never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. So we read in this text this great calamity, this great tragedy, this tribulation that falls on this people. My problem is I have nothing in my experience that lets me come close to relating to anything that's in there. Nothing. I've lived a, a, a soft, posh American life. Terry's grandmother on her dad's side actually lived through the Depression. Now, I've read about the Depression. I've read about the high unemployment rates and people dying of starvation and all these things. I've read about that kind of stuff. But I certainly didn't live. I don't think any of us lived through it. The, the depression. I'm kidding. The, the, none of us lived through the depression. None of us can. None of us have anything in our experience that would relate to what depression was. My my wife's grandmother, in fact, did live through the depression. She actually lost a sister to starvation during the depression, and it impacted the way she lived her life. It was a life changing experience for her. Terry says that's why Grandma never got her Christmas presents. I, I'm, I'm kidding, but, but she was. She was, she, was very, she was very careful with her money, very miserly with her money. Why? Because she lived through an experience that absolutely changed her life. My, back in the 50s, 60s, my, my great-grandmother, and I remember my, my mom told me this story, but the, I don't remember the circumstances, but they were looking at my great-grandmother's birth certificate. And somewhere on the birth certificate, it was, it was noted that she would, it, that was printed in 1930-something. It was reprinted in the 30s. And somebody asked her, why was your birth certificate printed in the 1930s? She was actually born in 1892. Well, come to find out, my great-grandmother survived the Galveston hurricane that, that went through in 1900. They lost everything. But it was the kind of experience, she never mentioned it. And why didn't she mention it? It was a life-changing, memory-altering experience for them. She never talked about it. Why? It, it impacted her, her life to that degree. My point is, I have never had anything in my life that gives me any inclination of what real tribulation feels like. 
I've had nothing in my life that gives me any inclination, any feel, any ethos for experience like what we just read. I don't relate to that. And so what happens is anytime I, 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 I think about something like that, I sanitize it. I romanticize it, but I can't feel any kind of empathy with it. Why? I have never lived through that experience. And the other thing that I think allows us to damage this, this passage, the way we read this passage, is this. How often do we read a passage and it gets sanitized in our mind, not because of what it says, but because of what we want it to say. Because we want our theology, we push our theology right back in here. We've all seen this done in blatant forms. Years ago, I was talking to this lady, and she had a particularly particular sin that she was defending. And her line of reasoning was this. I don't see how God, a loving God, could judge somebody if this is a sin at all, how could they judge somebody for committing this sin? And what has she done right there? She had created an intellectual, a theological idol. Why? She wasn't getting her notions from the scriptures themselves. She was, she was what? Creating a God and then pushing it out and saying, this is what God looks like. She wasn't reading in the word and saying, this is what, what God looks like. Before we get too hard on her. Do you remember in Sunday school, 2 Samuel 6? Do you remember this story? Let me, let me flip over there. We'll look at it real quick. 2 Samuel 6. And we'll be reading, what will we be reading? 6 through 11. 2 Samuel 6, 6 through 11, house starting 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. How many of y'all remember the first time you read that story and you thought to yourself, they're moving the ark? Is that how God told them to move the ark? No. The priests were supposed to carry it on poles, right? But they, they're carrying the ark. They hit a bump. The, the ark starts jostling around. Uzzah puts his hand out to keep the ark from falling down, and God strikes him down right at the spot. How many of y'all remember reading that story or hearing that story and saying to yourself, that's harsh. That's tough. What, can, what, what, what is this? What kind of God is that? And, and I, can, I can tell you that's exactly what, what, let me see if I'm putting that, does this point? I don't, are we in like a soft society where we don't get to even have laser pointers anymore? <laughs> Do it? No. Oh. Probably best for, for me. There's an immature side inside of me that doesn't need a laser pointer. <laughs> but if you look at, but you look at it in, in verse six, seven, where it says, and, and, the, and God was angry with Uzzah. The very ver next verse, it says David was angry, and it's the exact Hebrew word for both of those. 
So my point is this, David pretty much had the same reaction to this as when you and I hear this story the first time we think, that's harsh. Can we be so bold as saying God wasn't acting rightly? Is there something in there where, where we almost rebel against looking at God when he, when, he's, when he does this and we're saying God is being harsh? What are we doing when we think of the, of the story like that? What we've taken is we've taken our value system, our, 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 our ethics, and we're pushing those on God, acting like God should obey that and not the other way around. We're forgetting who the creature is and who the creator is. This is a theme that absolutely runs all through the Bible, that where we look at God and God puts a standard on us and the failure to meet that standard is death. And I can tell you in my own mind, when I read through the Bible, there's just a natural tendency, a natural inclination that when I read stuff like this, what do I do? I clean it up. I mean, very literally, we could, well, we could start in the book of Genesis and we could follow it all the way out to Revelation. And we're going to do that a little bit. But hang in there. I want to, lay, I want to establish one foundational principle. Whenever you see God's wrath mentioned, displayed in the Old Testament, it is always pushing forward to a greater wrath, a greater judgment. It's always looking forward. And, and you know, you've got to be careful when you start, start making statements like always when it comes to theology. I'm ready to say this. It always looks forward to a greater judgment down the road. And let, let me look at a couple of passages that, that, that defend this. I'm going to give you four reasons why this statement is so. And I'll be honest with you. The forcefulness of them goes from strong to weak. I'm not going to say weak. But I think my first reasons are a lot better than my last two reasons. But I, I could probably frame this better, but hang with me. Look at Isaiah 66. Actually, I think I, I typed it out. I did type it out, but you probably can't read it anyway. So Isaiah 66, 22 through 24. Isaiah 66, 22 and 24. And we're looking at how God reveals, how God informs us about what his wrath looks like. Now look at 66, 22 through 24. I'll read the, the passage here. For as the new heavens and, and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. For new moon and new, new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fires shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Look over now to Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel 12. Daniel 12, and it'll be the first two verses of this passage. At that, at, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who was charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, if you've been around the Bible 
long at all, and you remember the New Testament teaching on hell, does any of those phrases sound familiar? Matter of fact, the New Testament uses exactly those phrases when it teaches about hell, and it, and it reaches back to the Old Testament and, and te uses those exact same phrases. So my point is this, the ideas that we get out of he about hell in the New Testament, their foundation, the first time you, you read about their, the, the root of that teaching, we find that in the Old Testament. Secondly, the prophets, the prophets would regularly look at a current, and this is, this is getting, hang with me if you can, the prophets would look at a current crisis, a current tribulation, and they would always point to one that was coming, something greater coming. Let me look, look at Joel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, dot, 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 Joel, if you want, 849 in my Bible. And we'll just look at the first chapter. And, it, and it, this is really interesting stuff, but I think it's important for us to see this. How, how does God reveal his wrath? How, how, what, let's read it. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and tell, let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eating. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eating. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust is eating. So Joel is talking, and we don't know when this was. Anybody that gives you a precise date on when Joel was written, he, he, he's guessing. But we don't know when this was, but we get the context right there. A swarm of locusts came in and wiped out the food supply, which, one, it's again, we don't relate to that very well. Maybe the Dust Bowl people from the 1930s, but we don't relate to that. Um, but he says, look at this. This is an event that, that you or your fathers have never seen before. Look later, though. Look at verses 13 through 15. Put on sackcloth and, and lament, O priest. Well, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your neighbor. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the, uh, from the Almighty it comes. He's talking about one specific tribulation, trial that these people are going through. What's that? The locust wiped out everything. We have nothing to eat. But what is he doing? Hey, repent. Put on sackcloth. There's a bigger one coming. There's another day coming. He's pointing ahead to something greater. Look in Obadiah. Look, look in the book of Obadiah. A few pages over. I'll read just a few verses, and then I'll read the, the a verse at the end. Verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down in the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. We, we remember about Edom. I hate it when pastors do this, preachers do this, reference a Hollywood movie from the from the pulpit, but I'm going to do it. In uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of them, they have the, the big, the, the big uh, red cave-looking things. Petra is what it's called. That's what, he, that's what this is actually a reference to. The Edomites, what later become the Edomians, they lived in there. They lived in these rocks, and they thought to themselves, inside of these rocks, nobody can get to us. We're impenetrable here. 
And Obadiah comes to him and he said, hey, no, God can reach in here and punish you inside of these rocks just like he can reach anywhere. So that, that's the context of Obadiah. But look again in, in verse 15, and it says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. So at the very first, we're talking about Edom. The Edom is going to be ripped out of their rocks. They're going to be destroyed as a people. But, but what does Obadiah says? There's something greater that goes beyond just what you see in Edom, that God is coming, there's a day of the Lord coming, and it's going to rip all the nations. So he's pushing forward to something bigger on the horizon. Then look at the very last little section of the entire Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, verses four of, uh, chapter 4, 1 through 5, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will, stubble, stu will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave you neither root nor branch. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the judgment that I command him at Horeb and for Israel." You shall tear down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day. My point is this, all through the prophets, and we could have gotten this idea practically out of any prophet. They're all, yeah, you're going through this right now, but there's something bigger on the horizon. There's something else coming down the pike. So they were always pointing forward. So the language that we see regarding hell in the New Testament actually comes straight out of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see this pushing forward, this great day coming. So, so we have that. The other thing that I think we need to think about is this. The wages of sin is death, as Paul says in Romans. That's actually an idea that we get out of the Old Testament. When, when uh, God pointed to the tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, what did he say? The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, when we think of the judgments that, that God rained down on his people, and let's just move forward to a close one, you know, chronic, sequentially in the Bible, their Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah. When you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, the Sodom and Gomorrah, when God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, was everybody killed that had ever lived and sinned in Sodom and Gomorrah? We're speculating here a little bit, but we would say no. There, the reality is that, that there were people that grew up in Sodom and Gomorrah, lived a sinful, abominable life in Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, and they died a natural death. But God teaches us in Genesis 1, 2, 3, that when you sin, you're going to die. So what's going on here? Just because somebody... They, doesn't get hit by the day of the Lord, there's still something else. There's something that goes beyond natural death. There's something that, that is, is, is something more, there's a death here that goes beyond just our physical death. We might not necessarily get caught up in the day of the Lord, but, but there's still something beyond our own natural death that we don't want to see. And then I, I, I want to make one more point about this. If you look, and this is the weakest of them all, I'm fixing to argue from silence, but this is almost a deafening silence. When you look in the New Testament, the rich man and Lazarus, do you remember the story here? And we'll look at it again here in just a little bit. 
But the rich man and Lazarus, what happened? The rich man was living all day, and he's living, eating the good stuff, living the good life, nice stuff going on. Lazarus is sitting outside. Dogs are licking his wounds. When, when they both die, when, when Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, then the rich man, he, he's, he lifts his eyes, being in torment. Did Christ sit there and, and explain what was going on there? No, he didn't. And, 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 we, and we could go through lots and lots of instances like that where Christ says, this is what's going to happen. But he doesn't give any foundation to it at all. And my, my take on it is a whole lot like we get with Nic, Nicodemus uh, uh, in John chapter 3. Uh, you, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know about me. There's some things that, they, that, that Christ doesn't connect all the dots for because it's coming out of the Old, Old Testament and we should connect, be able to connect the dots. And my argument that I'm making based on the fact that the language in the New Testament draw, on teaching of hell goes back to the Old Testament. All the prophets were looking for something, a bigger day, that, and, and that the, the universal idea that everybody's going to die for their sin. All of this, there's enough dots in the Old Testament that Jesus in the, in the New Testament, when he starts preaching his stories, he doesn't feel the need to connect all the dots for us. They understood that there's a greater judgment coming. I say all of this for this. I get talking and I forget what I want to put forward. Sorry. If we, when, we, when we think about the judgment, we could start anywhere. But we need to keep in mind that every time we read about a judgment in the Old Testament, something awful that happens in the Old Testament, we need to keep this in mind. It's pointing to something greater. There's something bigger coming down the road. We, I... I I mean, literally, we could, we could start in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah. We could start with the flood. And the flood's another one that I think when we really meditate on what's going on the flood, we, we, you know, we've got the story on the flannel graph, the Sunday school flannel graph, but think about what's really going on there. This isn't, this isn't a gentle rising of the waters. This is a flood, a violent flood that wipes out all humanity, wipes out everything. And we, and we, we kind of shield ourselves from from the details of that thing, but I can tell you the day that the flood struck, men saw their, their wives and their children washed away. The day that the, that the flood came, you saw calamity that had never been seen before. There, there, was, there was weeping, there was wailing, there was yelling, there was, there was terror. The, the flood was not a, a, a thing where a gentle rising uh, of the water and all of a sudden we can't tread water anymore and so we start it, it, this was a violent very terrifying thing when we think about what happened in the flood Sodom and Gomorrah in one single instance with the finger of God two, two, two cities are wiped off the face of the earth man, woman, boy, girl, child everybody the judgment of God comes down on there and, it, and it's swift it, and it's devastating when, it, when in, in Egypt we, we think about the ten plugs and we, the flies and the locusts and the, the hail and the, the boils and all these things. But how did God finally break the will of Egypt? He took the firstborn. I, has anybody ever seen the torment of somebody that's lost a child? What my point is this. When we read these stories in the Old Testament, the last thing we need to do is divorce ourselves from the ethos of what's going on. We, can't, we don't need to divorce ourselves, pull ourselves away from the emotion that that story would have elicited when somebody read it in the original. Let's look at, at Deuteronomy, where Paul was reading this morning. 
So back to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27. And I'm just going to grab a few bits and pieces of this for the sake of time. If I can find it, I'll be grabbing bits and pieces. I'll start reading in verse 9, and you'll, you'll see how I read it in just a second. Uh, then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levite shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and mother. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife. Flip over to, to, to 50, uh, uh, 28, looking at verse 52 and 57 through 57. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your, your, your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your, your sons and your daughter, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress, which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you, begrudged food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he has eaten, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she's so delicate and tender will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because lacking everything she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns gross, right? When you really read what's going on there, it's absolutely abhorrent what, what, what a curse of God really means. We could go through and, and look at, I just want to look at a few of these things. Look, 28, 20 through 24. And, I, and I'm, I'm getting to a point here, if, if you can hang with me. The Lord will send on you curses confusion and, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make pestilence stick to you until it has consumed you off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. And we know, in fact, that all of these curses, the blessings and curses, what we have here in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you could actually frame the entire uh, historical narrative around these two. Another plug for, for Paul's Sunday school lesson. Starting in Joshua, you see how this looks in, in real life for these people. But this idea of pestilence, once again, I've never, I've never been that sick. But we get, it, get the idea that this is, a, this is something that happened all through the Old Testament. Leviticus 26, 25, and I will bring a sword upon you 
that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. Second Samuel twenty four fifteen. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba seventy thousand men. Ezekiel five seventeen. I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Every one of these things that, that we're going to mention is difficult for me to relate to. I've never lived through anything like this. I guess we, we've got a little, little glimpse of it, what's going on right now. If you take the, the numbers as, as they're reported, 116,000 people in the United States have died from the coronavirus in, what, the last three months, thereabouts. That's out of, what, 330 million. If you go back to, to World War I, this, the Spanish flu, 1918, stretched out over a larger time, but about 675,000, maybe more, died from the Spanish flu in the United States in that time period. That was out of a population of 92 million people. If you go back to the 14th century, the Black Plague, the Black Plague would go into a society and it would wipe out 30, 40, 50% of a civilization. Over time, and it was spread out, but I mean, literally 30, 40, 50% of the people would be gone in just a matter of time. 1800s in the United States, it, 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 all of us have all these kids running around here. In 1800, 40%, 40%, 46% of the children that were born in the United States never saw their fifth birthday. So, so my point is this what we're going through right now, that's something we, we, we can just marginally relate to anything that is going on in, in when the Lord says that he's going to send pestilence. We don't relate well to that. We, it, we can say it. We can say, yeah, the Lord made a lot of people sick, but it doesn't really impact us like it would impact somebody who actually lived through an event like that. Somebody had any understanding of what that would be, that, that would, it, would, it would impact them differently. Look at 28, 25 through 35. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them the way. The Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch, of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday, the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall not only be oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall not be given to your enemy, shall be given to your enemies but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. Again, we don't relate well to what war looks like. And certainly in, in the U.S. and in, in the mainland, we don't relate well to that. But war was just a major part of their life. If you look, look at their history, if you look at the history of Israel, let's say the, the, the kingdom. So, so we can figure that, that David took over about, about what, 1050 B, 
BC, remember, go the, the, the other way. So David took over, depending on whose numbering system you like. 1050, a land of peace, a lot of war, till about 1010 BC. Solomon took over 1010 BC. Let's see, no, I've got my time right. So it would have been Solomon. David would have taken over about 1010 to about 970. Solomon would have taken over about 970 to about 930 BC, right? And then what happened in 930 BC, the kingdom split. You have Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and immediately, about 930, we have the northern ten tribes going north. And then we have Judah and Benjamin in the south. It wasn't 200 years later that God gave over the northern tribe uh, to the Assyrians. We're not used to thinking in terms like this, the cruelty that, that was going on there. This is actually, it's called, called the, uh, and if you're streaming, have somebody Google the release of that Lachish. This is actually in the museum, museum in, in Britain. Uh, came out of the palace, the, the throne room in, in, the throne in, in Nineveh, which is about where Mosul is now in Iraq. But you look right here, and what you're seeing here is you're seeing two guys tied down to the ground and being skinned alive. Those were actually sitting in the throne room in, in, in Nineveh. Now, we have some vision of cruelty, but, but not really. We're not used to dealing with guys like this. That, that's who took over the, the, the people, of God's people, what were God's people. That's who took them over in 722 B.C. If, if we keep reading, Judah, it, Judah hangs in there a little bit longer, but still... Israel was all bad. Judah, it was a mixed bag. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But still, they were rebellion. There, there was rebellion against God. If you start going into 605 B.C., Babylon started coming down. 586 B.C., it was, it was, it was final. Look at 2 Kings. And, and, and I apologize for the vividness of this, but, but sometimes it's good for us to see what is the judgment of God? What is the wrath of God look like? Second Kings 25, verses 1 through 7. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to, 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 took him to Babylon. When we let the impact of God's wrath, what does it look like? What does it feel like? It's ugly. It's appalling. It's revolting. Uh, it, it, it truly, the, the passages that we've looked at, if we let it sink in what's going on, it's truly abhorrent what we, what we see, God's wrath. It didn't discriminate. Men, women, children. When we think about what God's wrath, 
it, 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 the prettiness is just ripped off of it. I, I want to do one more thing real quick before we bring this thing to a close. The New Testament, it doesn't change. We like to think, okay, that was the God in the, in the, in the Old Testament, but when you change from Malachi to Matthew, the, it's, a different, it's a different feel altogether. Look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. So, so Jesus is... Is that one of those Amber Alerts? Um, um, Luke chapter 13. There, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So some guys came up to Christ said, Christ, did you hear what Pilate did? There were some innocents standing down there. He sent his soldiers in, and, and, and he, he slaughtered them on the temple floor. And, and Christ said, they're, they're asking, basically what they're doing is saying, Christ, why, why, why in the world did bad things happen to these good people? And Christ, his answer to them wasn't, it wasn't anything like what they were expecting. I'm sure we were looking for some philosophy on, on how, how evil is the opposite, absence of God, or this, that, and the other that, that God permits, but, but that's not what Christ said, is it? Christ said, what do you mean, these innocents? Do you think that you're asking the wrong question? The question isn't, why did, did God allow Pilate to kill these people? He said, why hasn't it happened to you? He said, there was, a, there was a tower that fell and killed 18 people. And the question isn't, why did this happen to them? The question is more, why doesn't it happen to all of us? Why? Because if we don't all repent, we will all likewise perish. The question isn't, why does God bring his wrath on some people? The question is more, why doesn't God bring his wrath on all of us? That's the question. Look over in, in Luke 15. We just mentioned it. I guess I could put a plug in for Alex's uh, Sunday school lesson now because Kinghorn did. The, so chapter 13, we, we, uh, Christ is giving us what? A, a look at the nature of evil. And, and interestingly enough, and we'll jump back to where we are, Luke 15, we actually get a glimpse. What's the nature of evidence? You remember the story right here, right? Rich man Lazarus, uh, uh, what does is, what is the rich man say in hell? His eye it lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Lord, dip the finger of your water, come cool my tongue. And, and, and no, no dice, like, like, uh, the rich guy. But then he said, well, somebody go back from, from the dead and tell my brothers. And what, what, do the, what do they say? Hey, just because somebody comes back from the dead, they're still not going to believe. So right here, you want to talk about the nature of evidence and apologetics? Go listen to Alex's class in a few weeks here, right, Paul? They bouncing out. So, but what's the story here with Lazarus and the rich man? This guy's living his life, living a life of opulence, living a life of comfort. He dies, and what happens? He is facing, he is living the torment, the wrath of God. So it, it, the, the whole notion that the curse of God stopped at the end of Malachi is a farce. 
You keep going. You look at, at Acts, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What they do? Lord, we gave it all. We, we gave it all to the church. God takes their life. If I read that, I said, man, that was just a little white lie. They, just, they, they still gave something to the church. They just didn't give as much as they said. And, they, and God said, took them out. When we look at Herod, where is that chapter 12? Herod, and, it, and it's gross. It's another one of those, the wrath of God, and it's gross. His, he's eaten with worms. If we look at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul saying, hey, if you don't love the Lord, may you be accursed. The book of Galatians, going all through the, the, the book of Galatians, anathema, let them be accursed. My, my point is this. It didn't end at Malachi. Look, the wrath of God is still in play today. One more point that I want to make. All of these were written, all of this wrath, all this judgment was written as a foreshadowing of what was to come. And in a lot of ways, it's difficult for us to relate to it. There's an element in each one of these that I think gives us a hint of just how horrific the wrath of God is. Look at Psalm 137. And in, in some ways, this, this is like the most distasteful psalm there is. Psalm 137, we'll, we'll, we'll read it. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required us of, of a song, and our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, Jerusalem, I do, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be the one, shall he be, who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. An absolutely abhorrent psalm. I, I can tell you, I don't relate well to pestilence. I've never been... <laughs> I barely, I don't, I remember the chicken pox. I don't remember that. I don't, I don't relate well to wartime or seeing, seeing, losing my wife and my kids to war or, or natural. I haven't lived that life, but I do relate to this. The, the natural affection that there is between me and my kids. And when you think of the common thread that goes all the way through all these judgments, it's almost like God puts something in his revelation that we do relate to. And that is the idea of losing our kids. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the pestilence, the war. Sometimes it even says, when, it, when it's describing a war that's coming up, they're not gonna take any account for your wife or kids. They don't care. And when we start thinking of God's wrath in terms like that, now we're getting somewhere. And here's the point. This is the point of all of this. Until we understand the horror of the wrath of God, the abhorrence, the complete revolting nature of what God's wrath looks like. 
we don't understand the abhorrent nature of our sin. I've, I've been guilty so many times of engaging in pride, engaging in a lustful thought, engaging in anger. And what do we do? We minimize it. It's just a thought. It's just how God made me. It's just a little lie. And all of these are deserving of the wrath of God, the abhorrent, the terrible wrath of God. We don't understand our sin until we understand the wrath that we've earned with our sin. But for a, for a Christian, there's hope. There's hope. It, we don't understand our sin until we understand the wrath of God. But we don't understand the miracle of love, the miracle of mercy, until we understand God's gift. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became sin for us. Who knew no sin? He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I'll close this up. There, there, there's two kinds of people in this room, and, and exactly two. You'll notice on, on, on Gerizim and Ebal, there were two, two mountains right there. There weren't a lot of people standing in the middle. No, there's two kinds of people. And, I, and, 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 and let's say it from the outset, we're all lawbreakers. But there's two kinds of people here. There's some, some of you that, had, that see the abhorrent, the repulsive nature of your sin. You confess your sin. You see sin the way that God sees your sin. And to those guys, I can tell you, he was wounded for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquity. His, his punishment was on your behalf, and with his stripes, you were healed. But there's a crowd that's been, I don't know people here, but there, I can tell you there's another guy that looked at your sin lightly. And I, I, I can tell you, as, as God told us in Deuteronomy, God sees. Is God not storing up the wickedness? Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. There's a time when your foot will slip Calamity will come near. And I can tell you, it is a fearful, fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Let, let's pray as the piano player comes. And our Father, we pray that you'll show us our depravity, show us our sin, show us the cost of our sin. Remind us of your great love, of your great mercy. May we never think lightly of our sin.
May we never think lightly of your mercy.